Hello everyone, you are listening to the Why Aren't You Normal Epson podcast. I am your host for this evening, or the morning, or the afternoon, whenever you're listening to this podcast. And today we're going on a journey, as we do every episode, within the normality, the normalitative, the, within the normals of Epson regulars. Wayne. Within the lives that shape this town, analysing the amoeba that accommodate this area, putting a microscope on the mighty tropes that inhabit this area, seeking all the suffering and satisfaction of this sexy suburban living space, analysing all the accommodation on uh, offer, probing, poking and plodding all the people that decide to pee here. This is the Why Aren't You Normal Epson podcast. Let me just fill you in real talk for a second. This is the, this podcast is the Why Aren't You Normal Epson podcast. We, we run out of Epsom, was out of Epsom Hospital radio station due to the last year. It's now just from my kitchen. We're hoping to get back in there soon. And this podcast is, I'm right now I'm throwing my arm forward like Boris Johnson does. That's how passionate I am about this podcast. But, you know, I'm going to pull that back and just, just be myself for a minute. That's, that's it. I'm just going to get comfortable. So, wait, uh, yeah, that's better. If I, if I think about it, that the Boris Johnson description of how I was talking there is a good way to quickly sum up what the Why Aren't You Normal Epson podcast is actually about. So I've seen, I'm doing it again. And I put my hand on the armpit. I've seen Boris Johnson, and you've seen Boris Johnson on TV, being a dominant public speaker. He's trying to get his point across to the to the public and trying to convince them of the things that he's doing, and, and we should trust in his leadership, using body language like that, like throwing his, you know, he pumps his fist as he's talking. I've seen that on TV, and subconsciously maybe seeing that as as a sense of authority and power and, and, and me wanting to somehow dictate that to you, I've put my hand in the air, but, you know, because I'm copying, I'm copying Boris Johnson because I think that's what I'm supposed to do to be authoritative, where many people could say he's been a bit of a helmet over the past year, so why would I try and copy someone that I believe has been a bit of a helmet? Uh, you know, I've, I've just, I've copied him, that's because I thought that's how you do it. That's normal. Yeah. See what I did there? See where, see where I'm coming from? I've I've copied something normal because I think that's the way to be. Even though at the same time, I don't even believe it's the way to be. I've just been, I've seen it so many times in the telly that I've somehow believed it. Do you see, see what I'm, see, that's what I'm trying to say with not normal. You know, you're not the person. We're not the people that you see on TV. You're, you, you're probably just your own person. Well, you are just your own person. And um, what what's, what's you, what do you do? What's your normal? You don't have to pump your your fists like Bojo. You you have your own normal that I want that we want to find out about. If you especially if you're from Epsom, especially if you're from Epsom, because this podcast is an Epsom based podcast. We're, we're we're just looking into what the people of the town, what individuals of this town are doing, and hoping they share an insightful message to learn learn from, have a laugh at the expense of. Um, cry to if you you know if you really you know it gets a bit emotional sometimes laugh obviously sing along this this podcast features different musicians bands artists every episode all from the local area demonstrating their latest piece of sorry latest piece of creative art um yeah
So that's it. So that why, why aren't you normal? That's why we're asking people. We want to just know because they might share something. Share something with me and you because it's important to share because you can't do it alone, right? I'd like to welcome you to the brand new section of the podcast called uh, I got a, a beat pad for Christmas and I really want to use it on something. So, so, so here it is, live music coming at you from my beat pad. That's that segment over. Uh, back to the podcast. Now, today's guest is a lady called Sheila Berry. And at first glance, of a passport or a ID would would support that. Or you could just trust what she told you if she introduced herself as Sheila Berry. I certainly have. And she's an inspiring lady and I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation that I had with Sheila. Um, there's several aspects to her career and life that she's led that made me want to invite her onto the show um one of which being her sort of well she's got a fierce a fierce uh a fierce history of following the labor party um and i'm don't have to speak out of turn here to say that that's not the most popular ideology that ruminates through the town of epsom uh and withholding them beliefs she has actually become the the only person ever to be the mayoress and the mayor of epsom the sort of mayor that we're talking about in Epsom and Newell and in lots of the boroughs across the country are purely ceremonial, really. However... You have to stand down from your political um, work. Which helped us explore why Sheila's political motivations are as they are. I would regard myself as a socialist. I believe that people should be able to do a decent day's work and be paid a decent amount they should be able to feed their families and find decent accommodation um, if we can't look after people properly who need help then we are a pretty poor state which which sounds totally fair enough i think and and then we we sort of look at why it's important that someone like sheila has made the movement she's made over time to get us to the point where we currently sit in society. I remember, I remember going to visit our local MP uh, in Epsom and I was going to tell him what I thought about the poll tax because they had suddenly decided that although married women might not be working because they had kids, they were still supposed to be paying their poll tax. So I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to go and see this man and I'm going to tell him that this is ridiculous. So he reached across and patted my hand. I mean, how patronising is that? It's all right, my dear, because your husband will pay it for you. 
And that's all I'm giving you. That's 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 the show reel of the conversation. But we start with something I'm most interested in, which is the fact that she works for the GMB and she's the regional manager and organizer, I believe. Sorry, Sheila, I think I've got that wrong again. <laughs> um, but essentially, the really important thing to think is, is what is a trade union and why are they so important um, for the everyday normal folk like me and you? So I didn't know much about it. Sheila has paved the way for me to start learning. Um, and I hope she does for you too. Let's get on with the episode. There will be some music throughout this episode, as always. Um, this is a, this is a, an attempt to highlight the diversity and the not normalness within music within the town. Different musician, every episode. We'll feature a song of theirs throughout at some point. Not sure who it is yet, but you know, maybe I'll make. Let let let's just get on with the show. Wayne. Let's set the scene and pretend I'm an alien and I've, I've only just travelled to Earth and I've got no idea what a a trade union is or does. Uh, mm-hmm. What's what's the what's the purpose of of said unions? Um, well, a trade union is a collective. Um, maybe if I, I start by telling you how our union started, because it wasn't always called GMB. That's just, uh, you know, letters that have come about when they amalgamated various parts. But there was a, a young man. And I, when I say young, he was very young. He was about six or seven, I think, at the time. And he was working in a factory in the 1800s. And they told his manager told him that they were going to cut a halfpenny off his wages, and he decided that that was very unfair. Even that at that age, he thought that was pretty miserable. Yeah. Um, and so he told the manager that he didn't think it was very fair, and he was promptly sacked. And from there, he he went on as he as he grew up and got a bit bigger. He had other jobs. And he felt that that was unfair, that people were being treated like that. And people were working six days a week. They were working long hours. They were being paid a pittance. And so he decided he was going to set up a group. And by this time, it was the gas workers. And he worked for the gas workers because the gas workers and boiler makers were um, part of the local council at that stage. And so he got a group of all his workers together and he said that they were going to start a union and they had a bucket at the door and everybody threw their their penny in or whatever it was at the time um, to join the union. And they were all given a little card to say they were a member of the gas workers union. Um, And by the time they got to the end of the evening, they had to get a second bucket because they got too many pennies in the first bucket. Um, That man was Will Thorne. He was um, he couldn't read um, and he was taught to read and write by Eleanor Marx, who was the daughter of Karl Marx, who I'm sure you've heard of. And Eleanor taught him to read and write. And he went on to become the first um, leader of the what was then the gas workers, municipal workers and gas workers. Um, He went on to um, be head of that union. He then became one of the first, very first Labour MPs. And that's where the that's where our union started. 
I have a list, actually. I did a bit of research, especially for this one. Uh, the GMB yeah. originates from a series of mergers beginning when the National Amalgamated Union of Labour, the NAUL, National Union of General Workers, NUGW, and Municipal Employees Association, yeah. MEA, yeah. in 1924, joined into a new, new union named the National Union of General and Municipal, which is NUGMW. Right. And I'm very workers. happy that you, you, you decided to bring it all down to just GMB because it's had so many. Uh, it's, it's much, it is much easier it is much easier but it's um and and an awful lot of the unions the other unions um you know the, there are three big ones it's gmb unison unite and each one of those have been an amalgamation of of other trade unions over the years so for example the transport and general workers union which you, you've probably heard of because that's a very famous one is is part of one of the big the big nationals now um and so basically it was workers rights and it and it stems back even further than that to, to toll puddle and i'm sure you've heard of toll puddle if you're interested in unions um yeah toll puddle explain yeah right yeah. Toll, the toll puddle martyrs they were called and they were farm laborers um and they decided that, again, they weren't being treated very well. And so they had a meeting under a tree in Tollpuddle. And they um, and they decided they were joined together as a collective to have a union. But at that stage in history, it wasn't lawful to be a part of that sort of general gathering. And so they were taken to court and they were sentenced to be transported. And they ended up being transported to Australia. With the um, with the criminals with, yeah, as part of the boat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, eventually, some of them did come back. Uh, one of them is buried in the little tiny cemetery in Tollpuddle, and every year, around about this time, no, June time, I think. Um, every year, there is a big Tollpuddle festival, and people from loads of trade unions have done it march through the center of toll puddle they close it down they march through the center of toll puddle all carrying their individual union banners um and they have a little ceremony by the the grave of one of the toll puddle martyrs to basically to thank him for what he did uh, because so of the sacrifice that he made so the, you said to me yesterday in a phone call that it's the strength in numbers is essentially what a trade union is. So you've got lots of busy workers, heads down in the factories, dedicating hours, um, physical energy, therefore taking off their mental energy. As you said, the first guy couldn't even read who, who yep. set up this, set up this, um, these, this, this, or this group. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's essentially now, so it's a separate entity that has the actual rights of the worker for people that don't have the time or to be mm -hmm. sitting in the office and working out the rules and studying uh, mm -hmm. to represent on their behalf and that has essentially carried on throughout the whole trade union history that is just yeah. what it's that's what it's there um, for absolutely well i was i said i had a bit of exciting news i did um, yes you did mm. yes um, I, I knew about it yesterday. I couldn't tell you yesterday because it was it was still under under wraps. But um, you probably heard um, or seen on the television, if you're interested in this sort of thing, that um, Uber drivers um, were fighting in court, um, supported by by amongst others the GMB, um, because they want the right to be called workers. 
And that, that sounds, sounds a bit odd, but what it means is if you are a worker, you're entitled to certain things that you and I, who were in, employees of a company, um, take for granted, like sick pay, uh, holiday pay, um, the fact that you have set hours, that if you've got a contract, you will be paid for those number of hours that you work. Now, people like Uber drivers in the gig economy are on zero hour contracts so they only get paid for what they do they don't get guaranteed hours they don't get holiday pay they don't get sick pay and if the employer says to you one week oh sorry we haven't got any work for you this week you don't get any money but you're still technically employed by them and so what's happened um there was a big court case it went all the way up to the supreme court and the Supreme Court decided that Uber drivers could be counted as workers and therefore they had to be considered for holiday pay and sick pay and various other things that we all take for granted. Um, and so they have now signed a recognition agreement with the GMB as a sole, a sole trade union um, to, so that we can now at a national level go in and negotiate pay, negotiate terms and conditions. Um, and on the back of all that, with the, with the, the, the worker status as well, that's been a, a vast improvement for the rights of the people who work for Uber. Why is this such a landmark case? Because obviously Uber is a very new concept. It's the idea that there's a, a centralised office that isn't really doing much aside providing the algorithm and the AI that links the service to the worker. So does does this, is that what makes it such a, like a, a huge case? Because is it setting precedent for the future? Almost. It could it could well be because yeah. this is um, this is an an employer who isn't wasn't up until that time really an employer. Um, mm. There are loads of companies that do that. Um, it, it, it's um, you know a lot of the del Deliveroo type um, companies where they employ people to deliver things. Um, Places like Pimlico Plumbers, they they were very against having them as workers. So it, it it is a big deal, and and it's the it's the first one of the really big gig economy companies who have had to accept that these people are workers and they have rights. And so it, it could have a knock-on effect. I mean, it's early days yet, but it, it could have a knock-on effect on, on what happens to other companies like them. Because once you've got something that's gone through tribunals and, and Supreme Court, it sets a precedent um, and it's a legal precedent. So that when somebody else says to another company, well, we think these guys are workers, they'll quote that legal case. and that's when um, lots of lots of other people could have could end up with the same sort of benefits. It's a, it's a long yeah, road, but it could it, it could work. It's the start. This this podcast, I love looking into the future, basically, with, with this and, and what the, I don't want to call it the new normal, but what we once knew as normal and, and the way we are working within the society is changing. And with something like technology being the mainframe to anything rather than a head like a, a group of people then the type of worker that an uber driver is or a delivery driver is 
will do you think that will multiply there'll be a lot more of that kind of of work yeah, coming yeah. around i mean the argument for the zero hour contract from the employer's point of view was always well it's you know people like the flexibility of being able to pop in and pop out and say i can do so many days a week or or do a couple of evenings a week when they work for somebody else that was the that was the view but of course you need if you are using that job as your main your main point of income you need to know how much money you're getting in so it's no good saying oh well they'll give me they'll give me some work next week when you've got someone hammering on the door saying where's my rent you know it's you people need that stability they need to know that they've got a regular income and this is going to be far better for them because they will know exactly what's happening and there will be negotiations about other aspects which as i said we all take for granted and to go over what we spoke about Mm -hmm. yesterday when you mentioned to me that the main the main objective of a company is profit um so when sort of the demands of these workers that could could be made which would used to be benefit the worker then sometimes the employer would just see that as that's going to cut our profits mm-hmm. in half or, or whatever it's going to do and, and that's what's get, going to yeah. get in the way basically so they so they tend to not want to do it um mm-hmm. so it's interesting you know that the, the, this is what the trade union is there for but but famously I, when i look back history trade unions have been quite a controversial thing for for whatever reason um what why well, is that what well what i think i think at the beginning um well so I, I think also you know to start with people get the, maybe the wrong idea about trade unions now when i was when i was younger and well before you were born i'm sure um there was a, a program on the television called the rag trade and it was a group of ladies who worked in a clothing factory and um they had someone who was um who was their shop steward and every so often she'd have a bit of a row with the manager she'd blow her whistle and shout everybody out and then they all they all down tools and you know i wonder sometimes if everybody still thinks that that's the way the trade unions operate um and in some cases it might be very nice if we could do that but we're not allowed to um there is there is yes. a lot of legislation that has been brought up certainly by a, one of the parties who is not the one that I belong to, um, who have tried to cut back on trade union activity and trade union power. Um, and so more and more legal stuff crept in, um, trade union acts and, and things that stopped us from doing stuff like that. And I'm not saying that we should be able to blow a whistle and say everybody out, um, but it's we have to jump through so many hoops now to get to be able to do any sort of industrial action. So, so I guess the, over time, the, the contracts have been made smarter so that a trade union a trade union or a group of workers can't just decide to walk no, out you, because it will breach. Yeah, you still you yeah. still cannot do you. You have you have a right to withdraw your labor. So if you're a working person, you have that right. But um, you have to do it legally. And so we have to go through a lot of a lot of hoops before we get to that stage um and technically speaking you are breaking your contract when you go on on strike 
even if it's all done legally and everybody has has done everything properly, you are breaking your contract because the contract says I'll pay you money to do work and you come into work when I want you to. Um, now, if you don't do that um, and you're doing it because you don't have any valid reason like being off sick or being pregnant or something um, and you just say I'm not coming in today because I don't want to then you are breaking your contract so it, it, it's it's still a very technical thing but as long as you have the backing of your union and you've been through all the legal side of it then it's it's okay um, but it is it is something that we take very seriously and we have had some big strikes recently um and some of them are successful and some of them aren't but um that is a fundamental right of people to be able to withdraw their labor and on occasions that's what we'd get them to do so what's what big what has been your most memorable strikes over over recent times what's been most interesting to you oh i don't know i mean we've had um well obviously we've had some some big local government strikes where we've closed you know we've closed schools down we've stopped you know dustmen go on strike and you don't get your you don't get your bins emptied um everyone will have heard recently about the the gas workers strike um and so Dave, we will only ever um, be asking people to strike. Or, I mean, they will ask us if they can go on strike. That's the other thing, too, because it comes from our members. We are led by our members. I don't suddenly wake up one morning and think, oh, I think I'll close that school down. Let's have a, let's have, <laughs> have a strike ballot. That would be a good waving, idea. Waving your, yeah. waving your union, trade union wand yeah. around and saying, yeah. I'll close, so, I'll close. so we don't do that. We are very much led by our members. And if our members say that's what we want, want to do then we will have a, a ballot to see if that is is has got enough support and then we go from there um yeah but um but yeah i mean it the days of the huge strikes um back in the 70s when things were closed down and, and i obviously i remember the, the 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 big one was the miners strike and that was that was colossal and and whole communities were basically forced into starvation um, because if you close a pit down and that that's that's the the entire village or the entire town that closes down um, because if the money's not coming into the to the miners their families can't eat but also they're not spending money in the local shops and and so it it has a huge knock-on effect so the miners' strike, I think, probably for me was one of the huge, huge, big turning points. And, and the way the miners were treated was awful. Was, was that Thatcher? Was that during Thatcher times? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, what was the general atmosphere? Is that is that what is that what emotionally pulled you towards a career in this in this in this field, or was you invested otherwise? I don't know, really. I mean, I, I've. Um... I, I suppose I mean I've always I've always been either a supporter or a member of the Labour Party. Um, I joined the Labour Party far longer ago than I care to remember, probably forty years ago. Um, and the person who I, I mean I, I've I've been to uh, to meetings where I've had to make a speech and people have said you know what made you join the Labour Party and I always say there was one politician who 
influenced me and made me realise that I couldn't just go out and vote Labour at the elections. I had to be a part of the party. Um, and that person was Margaret Thatcher. Wow. Um, and yeah. she made me join the Labour Party because um, because of her views, because of the way she was, because um, I I can't I, I probably can't on a podcast actually tell you what I think of that woman. Um, I can say whatever you think. <laughs> I hated her. I yeah. hated her then. I hate her now for everything she stood for. Yeah, yeah. I one of my favourite songs uh, is called Thatcher effed uh, the kids, and um, it's by a singer called Frank Turner. And and what he says in this song um, is basically the sense of community was completely ripped apart under the hands of um, this yeah. rain, and it basically. And then a lot of people started questioning why all sense of community died. Um, and he was saying it was all because of the things that she did. Um, Which, and is that what you what you mean yeah. when you when you say you tear apart the workers, uh, the mine, the miners' towns? And what you yeah. do is you rip, you rip. You, what what they said is is that you rip the community at the bottom and it and it topples. And what it has ended up doing, I think, is come to a culture now where people don't know their next door neighbour. People have secluded themselves into small. Mm-hmm. Um, this smaller circles and what that does is t- tear down that strength in numbers thing that you were talking about in yeah. the first place and, and yeah. you th- is that yeah. well I mean she she dogged me through the whole of <laughs> an awful lot of my career really because when I was a student teacher she was education minister um, <laughs> and, and took away the kids milk so Margaret, you know, we went on on um, we went on demonstrations as student as student teachers. Margaret Thatcher, milk snatcher, because um, I remember <laughs> that very well. Um, and uh, then she became prime minister, obviously, and that um, at a time when um, and we we had we had young children, and she pushed you know the council tax became the poll tax, which we couldn't afford to pay. Um, and it, and it just went on and on and on. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I remember I remember going to visit our local MP uh, in Epsom and I was going to tell him what I thought about the poll tax because they had suddenly decided that although married women might not be working because they had kids, they were still supposed to be paying their poll tax. So I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to go and see this man and I'm going to tell him that this is ridiculous. So um, my, my husband, Alan, who you know, um, he the one thing he said as I left as I left was don't swear at him. Um, <laughs> and so I went along and I told him what I was there for. And I said I was really concerned because I'd been told that I had to pay my poll tax. Um, and I was really worried because I you know, I was a mum, I had young kids, I didn't work, what was I going to do? And he reached across and patted my hand. I mean, how patronising is that? It's all right, my dear, because your husband will pay it for you. And I said, well, actually, he's a school teacher, and you know very well that the Conservative Party don't pay teachers all that well, so how exactly is he going to do that? So I had a little think, and he said, uh, how old is your youngest? And I said, three. And he said, oh, right. He said, well, you could put him in a nursery and get a part-time job. So I said, again, I, I said, well, you know, smiling sweetly, I said, um, 
Well, actually, you know very well that the Tory-run Surrey County Council have actually closed a lot of their nurseries. So where exactly am I supposed to put him? And he said, oh, I take your point. And then there was a silence because he didn't have anything to say to me. And, no. and having having promised that I that I wouldn't swear at him, um, I I just stood up and I said, "You haven't got you know you haven't got a clue, have you? You're just wasting you're wasting my time. You just haven't got a clue what it's like yeah. to be an ordinary person here because the poll tax had actually doubled our um, had doubled our, our rates overnight at the same time when our mortgage was set at fifteen percent." Yeah. Because that was going up and up and up as well. Um, so I didn't pay my poll tax. Yeah. Because I couldn't afford it. Yeah. And, and, and what happened after that? No, nothing. Yeah. Nothing. They never did. Um, oh, I'm, I'm probably having said this out in public now. They'll probably come and say you owe us yeah, yeah. amount of money. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, considering my kids are now in their 30s, I think probably it's a bit late for them to start claiming back poll tax. Hello, it's Lewis here. We're just taking a small break from the podcast now to feature a local musician, as we do every episode, a brand new musician every week. Well, it's the same musicians every week. There's only so many musicians in Epsom, but, you know, we switch it up a little bit to choose from. Reese Crowther is the one we've got on today. We feature him a lot uh, because he's done so much to help this podcast out. Uh, check him out on Spotify. This song is called Parallel Lines. I don't want to overhype A habit of romanticising Looking for perfect all the time Ignore the overhanging vices But here's my thesis She's the queen kinesis Makes me dream up sweet releases I'm defeated I miss her on the weekend Thoughts of her repeating She don't even know that I'm existing Will she hear this? I guess what we have in common The parallel lines are take The overlaps half an hour if that I guess what we have in common The parallel lines are take The overlaps half an hour if that Well I'm stunned Wondering how to overcome Set myself up to fail, well done Sit back and regroup Ruminating to get through I guess what we have in common The parallel lines are take The overlaps half an hour if that I guess what we have in common the parallel lines are dead He overlaps half an hour if that Guess what we have in common? The parallel lines are day 
I want to pull back to politics, actually, and yeah. when you spoke about Margaret Thatcher being a sort of uh, incentive for you to to stick with a political career, like you've almost some sort of opposition over the time, and that led you all the way to first of all becoming the the, the yeah, well that you was the mayoress of Epsom, and yeah. and then ten years later you actually became the mayor of Epsom yourself. Yeah. What what was the um, difference between being the mayoress to the mayor, what happened over those 10 years? Like, did it change at all? Like the dynamic and also, Mm -hmm. I might be making things up, but being a female um, in that role, did that, did that feel uh, any, any differently? What's the sort of overall view of your experience? Right. Lots of questions there. Sorry. That's all right. No. Um, Well, to be, um, in order to be a mayor, um, in this particular instance, so we're talking, you know, there are two different, you are aware that there's two different sorts of mayors. Okay, so you've got the mayor like um, Sadiq Khan and and Andy Burnham, who are elected into the role and take it on for four years. And they are political and they make big decisions. The sort of mayor that we're talking about in Epsom and Ewell and in lots of the boroughs across the country are purely ceremonial, really. So you don't have a lot of power, to be honest. You, you yeah. might sit and cha- you might sit and chair the council meetings, but you know it, you, you're just sitting there, just like a chairman yeah. of a meeting. Um, so that so they are different. Um, in order to be a mayor, you have to be a local councillor and you have to be elected to be in there by the other councillors. So it isn't just a case of, oh, I think I'll be mayor this week. It doesn't work like that. You have yeah. to do it. So so, um, so my my then husband, Alan, was, um, was made mayor of Epsom. And it automatically follows that if you're a male mayor, that your wife or partner becomes the mayoress. And so you kind of walk a step behind and you, you have to go and buy a load of big hats and posh frocks and... Uh, um, yeah. And, and that, that's about it, really. You know, as a, as a mayoress, you don't do huge amounts. The only thing I do remember standing out really well as a mayoress was there is a, a private members club in Epsom called the Epsom Club. And they have a um, they have a, a ladies night um, and uh, or they did at the time anyway. And they asked me to, somebody is going to propose a speech to the ladies, they said. And then as mayoress, I was going to have to respond to this, you know, to this speech. And I said, oh, yeah, that'll be fine, because I thought it was going to be somebody who would just stand up and say, oh, don't they all look lovely tonight? And thank you all for coming. (laughs) And let's raise a glass. Um, I thought it was going to be like that, in which case I would say, oh, thank you very much. And on behalf of all the ladies here, thank you. And yeah. I got there and they then told me that the person who was going to be proposing this this speech to the ladies was Jack Ashley. Um, Now, I don't know if you've heard of Lord Jack Ashley. No. You should do. Look him up. Yeah. Um, He, um, an amazing character. He was a Labour MP um, for many years. He was profoundly deaf um, but he managed to be uh, he managed to be a very well spoken and very well revered 
uh, MP, um, when when Jack was going to talk in the House, everybody listened. You know, he was a very good speaker. Um, he was one who one of the people who pioneered, in fact, probably the person who pioneered the compensation for the thalidomide um, victims. So, um, and obviously, very big on um, on the rights of um, rights of disabled people. So I get there and they tell me that it's going to be Jack who's going to be doing the speech. And I thought, oh, no. You get all because... flustered. No, he's brilliant. <laughs> he was absolutely yeah. brilliant because he will talk forever on any subject you can possibly mention. He was very funny. He was really good. And it was, and I remember standing up and saying, well, yeah, follow that. You know, thanks for it. Thanks, yeah. Jack. <laughs> um, so that was one of the few things that I did as a mayoress, which made me feel I'm totally inadequate. No. <laughs> um, so 10 years later, um, it was it was my turn. And, um, and so I became mayor in my own right so if you're a, a male mayor you're called mr mayor and if you're a female mayor you're called madam mayor um but of course obviously i couldn't have um i couldn't have a mayoress in theory because i wasn't um i didn't have a i didn't have a wife um and so who was going to be my mayoress and what normally happens is if you've got a married um a married female mayor you have a male husband um who is called the mayor's consort and it was decided that my my mayor's consort for the year was going to be my son and yeah. he um he he had some very creepy feelings about somebody of my age with a young man being called my consort he didn't think mm. that sounded quite right um and so we just called him the mayoress all the way through um, and he got, and that was fine. Yeah. yeah, that was fine. But but what was interesting because you were talking about you know the difference between the two, we used to pitch up to meetings or to gatherings, and I would be standing there with this great big double layered gold chain on, and Andy would have a little um, a little thing, a little chain, um, or or more more likely, it was going to be sort of like a ribbon with a little with a, a smaller badge on it, and they would talk to him as if he was the mayor, and and frequently he'd say, no, no, it's not me, it's it's my mum. It's, over it's there. the, the, it's one, the lady the wearing the massive, big, the, yeah. the one with the big gold chain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was, it was interesting, but also horribly horribly obvious that they still thought that it was men who were the mayors and and the female who walked two two steps behind which was you know it's not that long ago and it does seem a bit um a bit strange really but you know yeah. we had some we had some fabulous times um you get i think anybody who had the chance to do it i'd recommend they did it because you get to see your borough you get to meet some very interesting people. You learn a lot about your borough, um, and you get to say thank you to people. You know, there are there are so many, so many folk out there who are doing voluntary stuff, and they do it for donkey's years. They never get any thanks for it. They just soldier along doing all these thankless tasks or running the local brownies or something, and. 
it was a really lovely way to be able to go and see them and just say on behalf of the borough we'd like to thank you for what you do um and i and i really enjoyed doing that because i thought it was nice and they they always appreciated it um yeah it was nice did it change yeah. your overall view if you're walking down the street and you're looking mm. at Epsom Town or if you're just mm. or if you're driving around and you're seeing everything does the role of mayor change your perception at all or the way that you're the way that you look at uh the, stuff in general or did you pretty much maintain the same the same mindset all the way through well you get to know a lot of people i mean it, it it's yeah. not um i recognize people I'm not so good at remembering names, but you walk you walk down the road and you get people coming up to you saying hello. Oh, you won't remember me, but I yeah. and, you, and you say, oh my god, when did I meet them? <laughs> yeah. um, because um, I can't remember. I think Alan, when Alan was mayor, he did about 500 events, and I think I did about 400 and something. Um, now you imagine every single event you go to. They want you there and they, they're interested in talking to you or seeing you and you're not going to remember everybody. You can't, not with that number of people. Um, but, yeah, I mean, people get to know you. I remember walking down the town once, I was walking down along the town and Alan smiling at people and nodding um, <laughs> as we walked down through the town and I said to him, you haven't got your chain on, they just think you're barking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> just grinning and shaking hands for no reason. <laughs> yeah, well, no, he wasn't doing that, but he was just generally smiling and nodding at people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you you never know. Well, being the host of Epsom's biggest podcast, um, Sheila, I think I I, I really understand the set well, the struggle. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, uh, I I it's it's fascinating, and you're you're almost saying that, but being the mayor isn't so political. It's more of a, a sort of a role that no. is is traditional more than anything you have to stand down from your political um work so um so i mean it was very difficult for the for the poor guys who um who were with me because it worked out that we were on the point of an election and so I had been t- I had been asked if I wanted to be mayor. I'd accepted it. I'd looked into what charities I wanted, but I couldn't tell anybody um, because we were on the point of an election. And so um, I had to keep quiet about all of it, waited until the result of the election. Once I got back into my ward again, I knew then that I was going to be mayor. And so we had um, two new councillors there. It was um, Robin, Robin, Dan. And so they were very excited because they'd been elected for the first time. And we, we, sat, um, we sat together having a, having a meal and a, and a drink afterwards. And I said, well, actually, I've got something to tell you. Um, you two, you're on your own because um, I'm going to be mayor. <laughs> and so, um, so although obviously I could help in the background, um, it, everything was down to them because I couldn't be, I couldn't be political. I couldn't sit on the planning committee. Um, I just had to leave them to pick up the bits, yeah, really, and and just do mayor stuff. That's what you have to say. Yeah. So, yeah. so obviously you can't you can't bring your you can't bring your political agenda into the um the realm of being mayor. But uh, mm. obviously, I assume you 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 took an active interest anyway. Um, mm. be, being yeah. an area that isn't 
famously Labour supportive. Um, did, 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 did you ever receive um, sort of any, I don't know, I'm not asking for gossip. I'm just asking for like sort of the general feel and, and, and backlash of, 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 of holding them views and being so involved in local government. What locally you mean? I mean, it was. I think the you know that when you're a Labour councillor in Epsom, you're going to be you know sort of fairly fairly close to the minority in version. Yeah. Um, there is not there is not going to be a huge a huge change, sadly. Um, mm. But um, but I think what, what we've what we found and and we've you know we've we've carried this on through some some very um, you know some very well thought of councillors. So going back through the days, people like Bill Carpenter and Joyce Storer, who I learnt so much from, um, and also Laura Woodcock. You might like to um, to look her up. She Laura yeah. Woodcock was the um, was a was a councillor in Court Ward, and she was the wife of George Woodcock, who was head of the TUC. Um, and so we you know we've had some really good local councillors in Court Ward, um, and the the big thing really is if you are reasonable, and if you have a good argument, and you and you put your things, you, you put your thoughts and your suggestions forward. They will listen to you. They might not always agree with you, but they will listen. And that's what we've always, that's what we always tried to do. And I think what we still try to do, um, because you know that, that that if you're in a minority, everybody could outvote you without any problem. So you have to try and get, get your the views across so well. Yeah. This yeah. brings us on spectacularly to the state yeah. of um, the state of modern politics, especially within the left party, because you've obviously seen it um, turn from something that is very much about supporting Labour and about working mm -hmm. class people to yeah. something that has turned into a bit calamitous recently. Um, mm -hmm. And I want to say more to do with the fact that people aren't the the the, the expressions and what the left I'm going to say left in quotation marks mm -hmm. are after. You just said as long as they were reasonable, it's okay. But it, the, the common consensus at the moment of left-wing politics is that it's very unreasonable, very dramatic, and it's very much they're calling for things that things like cancelling and censorship and and stuff that seems a bit too far-fetched for the modern, uh, the modern sort of floating voter, if you will, to to mm -hmm. sort of bite on. Um, do you think that is? I'm really interested to hear what you're saying. Do you think that is just the media spinning it out of control a little bit about what they're after, or do you think the left has gone a bit too, a bit too far in, in what oh, they're calling for? Right, goodness me. Um, what I was saying about about being reasonable—that's local. Politics. That's local politics. You know, yeah, yeah, I understand. Politics. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, it is yeah generally national politics. It is very difficult. You have, you know, I'm, I would regard myself as a socialist. I believe that people should be able to do a decent day's work and be paid a decent amount. They should be able to feed their families and find decent accommodation. Um, if we can't look after people properly who need help, then we are a pretty poor state. Um, if you've got people who are ill, who are who are damaged in some way, have disabilities, or just can't cope, um, or they're in an area where they can't find accommodation, we should be helping them because that is what we as civilized human beings should be doing. Um, 
how you do that is obviously the next stage and that is the um and that is the the way that the labor party would would argue in certain ways and the tories would argue in a different way the, i think the difficulty is that whilst i might as a, a labor party member um regard myself as being quite left leaning you also have to say that it's not just the people who are members of the Labour Party who vote in general elections. And so you have to end up with a you have to end up with a view uh, that you put out with suggestions and a manifesto that you put out, which is acceptable to the rest of the world. And the difficulty I, I was finding um, when I was when I was working recently, um, going out door knocking in the last big election, was that the steer that was coming from the right wing press, and it is the right wing press in lots of cases, um, was that Jeremy Corbyn had horns. Basically, he was an awful man, and he was, you know, not far off communism, and we shouldn't be dealing with him. And he was speaking to all the wrong people. I mean, just as the way they they did with um, with with other people in the past. Michael Foot had the same sort of same sort of things thrown at him, and so people pick up that and. They stop voting. They stop voting. And I've heard I heard people on the doorstep telling me that, um, oh, I always used to vote Labour, but of course I can't vote for that Corbyn guy he's got. And 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 that is terribly unfair because they weren't reading the paperwork um, and they weren't listening to what was actually being said, but they were probably reading the front of the Daily Mail and getting a getting a view. Um, well, you know that view obviously we don't think is right, but um, but that's the view they get. The other hand, we had um, huge success when uh, when Tony Blair was leader, and I had my first election vote within about two months of. Um, of the great landslide of 97 that's when i first won a seat on the council and yeah. somebody wrote on the voting paper next to my name tony blair is a tory um and he wasn't he wasn't the left wing part of the party he was much more into the in central central leaning but he was acceptable to an awful lot of voters who probably wouldn't have voted labor had it not been for somebody um, for somebody who was who was going to be acceptable to them, and that's why Tony Blair won so many times. So we've got we've we've got that we've got that dilemma. Do you actually yeah. stick to your do you stick to your hard roots and say we are a socialist party? We're going to have somebody like Corbyn who who says all of the things. I mean, one of my big political heroes is Tony Benn. Hmm. Um, and again, he was very much onto the left of the party. Um, but when we get in, we get in with people who are more more to centre, shall we say. Hello, sorry, this is Lewis again here for the second and final edition to Wayne Music this episode. The one we've got coming up here is by an artist called Els, which is E-L-S, and you can find it on Spotify under that name. This one's called Shining Missile. 
vibe to it, relax to it, treat it as a little break between the talking. This will be the final bit of tunes for you. Bit of tunes? Are we in the 90s? This will be the final piece of music for you to listen to today before we get back to finishing the podcast with yeah, yeah. Enjoy. how our life is going to be I'll give you an example just before I I was I was racing back to make sure I got back in time to talk to you today because I'd had to go over to my local bank because yesterday I spent a very frustrating couple of hours trying to do some internet banking and all I wanted to do was to take my money out of my account and give it to somebody I chose to give it to now, you know, to me, that is a very, very simple thing. Nowadays, we don't tend to go into a bank and do all those sort of things like we did before. You do it on the Internet and it should be dead easy. 
Well, after two hours of trying to do this, when the computer was saying no all the time, um, I, and I actually wanted to phone my, throw my phone and my iPad out of the window, um, I ended up having to go into the bank and seeing a very nice lady who was very helpful, um, and she also couldn't get my internet banking working, so we had to do it manually. And I just feel maybe we've come too far in one direction. Um, I want to be able to talk to human beings sometimes. When I go in the supermarket, you know, you've got those those wonderful little things that shout at you and tell you. Don't start with them, Sheila. You've got something in the bagging area. They all shout at me. There are two reasons why I don't use those. One is because I don't want to be shouted at because I can guarantee I'll always do things wrong. And then I'm trying to juggle putting my money in or my card in. And then it's telling me I haven't got my loyalty card right. Um, And I've still got things that aren't in a bag yet. And so I won't use those for two reasons. One is because I like the human element. The other thing is because you will have lost your that person's job if you continue to use those awful things that shout at you yeah because the more of those there are the more they don't need the staff on the checkouts and but, can we I say mean, this is an excellent symbol for 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 why it should be so important to protect what it is about us that makes us human because yeah. if the supermarkets were to be made completely automated and manual it mm-hmm. is only doing that because of financial efficiency and because yeah. they want to make sure everything runs smoother. You're taking yeah. the choice off the human. You're turning us into a number. You're turning yeah. the, the, yeah. the services into machines. Now, there's mm-hmm. two ways this could go, in my opinion. We either then dedicate our time very seriously to working on co- communities and connecting. So maybe mm-hmm. the loss of those jobs might be okay but if something else in society opened up where where we go okay these machines are doing everything for us good but now how are we going to focus on the individual being happy and being and being part of something because if if you if you can make if you can promise me that i'll be happy to make this step into the machine world but if it feels like oh we're going to cancel your jobs and then we're going to leave millions of irrelevant people who don't have any purpose in life and are just going to be like that's going to create more issues then it's going to solve because what about all these people like you say out of work that have nothing to do you're going to create a divide between the people working and the people who actually cannot find a job where does that leave us in it's a scary scary situation doesn't it well it i mean i sort of digress a little bit from your your question but i i just feel that if everything is being done by technology and you order stuff online and you you have it delivered to your door by a robot um um you do all your banking on the internet you never see another human being you could go I mean, in a few years time you could go into the local restaurant or or pub and you could sit at a table and you could look at a menu and you could press a few buttons and say right i'll have that that sort of curry and i'll have a lager with it and a, and a robot or a little hatch would drop would come up and there would be your food and your drink 
you wouldn't need to in interact with any human being at all. It would just arrive. And what sort of life would that be? It would be terrible. I'll go one step further. Instead, what, I'll tell you what will happen as well, is the you will already have your machine in your pocket that could probably predict what you're going to choose from the menu because you've chosen it X amount of times before. Yeah. So before long, you won't even be making the choice of what food you want. Um, your, 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 the algorithm will decide for you what you're having. Uh, and uh, does that that's going to leave us in a state where we don't even know what we want or or will the machines know us better than us and 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 will we now merge in with them as to one like 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 on an anthill you know like when ants they just work automatically maybe the robots will just know what we want and we'll just work alongside it and and slowly they take over our whole lives Sheila what's going to happen oh there's a wonderful <laughs> there's a wonderful kids film that i've watched several times um and it's called wally i don't know if you've yeah. seen wally yeah. um I love it. it. It's just so sweet. And he, he, I mean, I defy anybody to watch that film and not fall in love with Wally because he's just so gorgeous. Um, <laughs> but that is, is, that is exactly what is likely to happen. You know, the people are so, had got so lazy and had everything done for them by the machines that eventually there was so much rubbish and, and they just ended up having to leave the earth because they couldn't cope anymore with the earth. And, and I just, I just find that, you know, we're, we're almost, I can almost see that in the future if we're not careful. We we need to be engaging with other people. We need to be talking to other people. And we need to make sure that everybody has that, that physical and um, um, contact with people because otherwise, um, otherwise you're going to be living in a void. And I find that really very scary. How is that check? Do you see a correlation from before the machines were so dominant in our lives when, when like previously in your life compared to what has happened now? What, what sense, what sense have you seen where it's changed? Like, is that, would you reckon it could be a rise in mental health problems because of this? Like, have you noticed a transition between the way people communicate with each other? Um, per se, well, or not I, yet? Yes. Well, I think it's, um, I think it's it, it's changed in that everybody now has a mobile phone, or pretty well everybody has a mobile phone. So you can communicate by sending a text message to people. Um, you can you can pick up the phone and, and talk to people on the phone. Well, that's very nice because I'd be able to talk to my family who aren't anywhere near me. Um, but I do think things have I do think things have changed. I think interaction between people have. Um, maybe has been more on the over the internet or on the electronic side rather than actually sitting in front of people. Um, and I, I, I miss that. Um, but things, you know, things, have, things have happened in my lifetime. The world has changed completely in my lifetime. You know, we, we didn't have mobile phones. Um, we didn't have a way of communicating. If you wanted to phone home and tell them you were going to be late, you had to find a phone box and stick some pennies in it. Um, not everybody even had a phone in their house. I remember when I was younger, we didn't have a phone. You know, it was yeah. that, that is inconceivable now. But I was when I was a teenager, we did not have a phone in our house. How has that has that changed the way 
you've noticed people communicate at all. Um, the fact that you've got it, it's almost it's almost like social ready mix, isn't it? It's ready for you. You can, if I wanted to right now, I could pick up my phone and I've got five, six WhatsApp group chats I'm part of. I could connect with over 50 people. I could witness conversations between all these people. Um, whereas you said before, if you wanted to speak to somebody, uh, you'd have to go to the telephone box or especially if somebody was on the other side of the world, it might be a letter making that social making that social connection uh, more meaningful, I guess, in a way than, than the way in which people sort of communicate now. I don't know. I don't know whether, which one's better. Do, do you know what I'm saying there? It might be that when we get a grips to it a lot more, it's actually, it might be better that we're all connected um, or has it taken away the meaningfulness of, a, of, a, of an interaction? I think, I think there's room for both. Um, I'm just thinking, thinking like little things. Like nowadays, it's very easy for me to pick up my phone, go to Facebook, and wish I don't know members of my family a happy birthday because it's their birthday today. And I say, oh, happy birthday, have a nice one, you know, little little tick or a hug or a kiss. In the old days, I would have had to have put a card in the post to them. And I, I quite like the idea that when it's my birthday, I get a little, a little pile of envelopes and people have given me a, a card because I, I just think it's nice and it shows that people have made an effort. It's, it's not much of an effort to say happy birthday on, on Facebook. Um, when, you, when you get a card, it means that people have actually taken the time to go and buy one and put it in the post and write it. Um, same with letters. You know, how many letters do people write anymore? They just don't. Um, and I think we've lost. I think we've lost that human touch by being able to do it quite so easily. I see what you're saying because with the like with a Facebook message and happy birthday, you get sent a reminder that it is somebody's birthday. So the yeah. the the receiving of a happy birthday maybe not feel as special as the idea that a card has come through the door, meaning they've made a trip to the shops, they've written it down, they 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 they've put effort in, and they actually have remembered. On, yeah. on their own account so what that's done is is actually made you feel more special but then in a way in a way I don't know if I really do have a comeback I think that you're right I think that that the only thing I can think of is will it open up a new way of communicating where instead of everybody being so um individualized you know and, and having it it, it it makes more of a collective where like you say we actually communicate more freely with people we don't know because everything's a lot less you're not confined to only sending happy birthdays to you know you can celebrate somebody's birthday you've never met before you can you can you know all, all these things so will it bring us together globally more um but at the at, at the sacrifice of the self you know uh, in, in some strange way it could go that way i think I suppose it. I suppose it really It really depends on how how much you want to be in contact with people you don't know. So, mm. on, going back to Facebook again, I I use it for my family. You know, I get pictures of members of the family that I haven't seen for a while, um, updates on the kids and how they're doing and things like that. I'm constantly getting things through saying, oh, would you like this person to be your friend? They're, they've mm. got, you know, you've got a mutual friend in common. And I look at it and I think, well, who the hell are they? And yeah. I just said, well, why would I want to be friends on Facebook with somebody that I've never met, never likely to want to meet, um, who's nothing to me, just happened to be a friend of somebody I know? Um, 
that doesn't make me popular just because I've got extra numbers of friends. You know, the fact that I've only, I don't know how many, I've got maybe 30 to 40. Um, yeah. And they're all, the majority of them are people that, um, people I know well because I'm related to them. If I suddenly had 500, does that make me any more popular? Does that make me any better? Or does it just mean I've picked up random people that to go on to my friends? Um I, I just I don't feel the need for that. I know some people do because it makes them look as if they're popular, but um, I I I just query really whether it's something that I'm I'm too fussed about or whether we should be fussed about. I mean, I don't need to know that somebody who I vaguely have have met in the past is sitting in a pub having a pint, and I get those all the time. You know, yeah. why do I need to know that you're sitting in the pub having a pint? That's all you ever tell me you do. So I'm, I do have a bit of a worry there that you spend an awful lot of time sitting in the pub. Um, but is, does that mean that I'm actually making contact with people? No, it doesn't. Because no, I think it's I think it's a it's a confliction between the, the, the what Facebook could be in terms of a free uh, social network where people connect with their friends who they really care about. Um, or to do with the fact that Facebook actually would like you to have all those mutual friends because what that does is opens up their network so they can have a better understanding of who's mm. connected and and, and yeah. try and get you on your phone more and, and, and see what's yeah. happening. Uh, because at the end of the day, Facebook's a company driven by profits and the way they make yeah. their money is they have advertisers pay them yeah. and they can promise the advertiser that you will see that the right person will see the right posts and they're driven by that. So, yeah. you know, yeah. to, to, I mean, if, to, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do have conversations with people, but mm. I don't take any notice of any of the adverts that come through. So they're wasting their time there. Yeah. Um, and the biggest, I suppose the biggest conversation I've had with people on Facebook and and, um, and my phone recently was when uh, when I was watching Eurovision because my um, my son and I watch Eurovision every year. He's never with me, but we we comment to each other about the the songs and oh, I didn't think much of them. Well, you know, what is she wearing? Um, and, <laughs> you know, silly, sort of silly stuff like that and picking out who we think are going to be the winners and then. Yeah, and and a couple of my my friends on Facebook um, were were commenting about it, and I made comments back. Um, but that's probably the biggest conversation I've had with Neil on Facebook for ages. Yeah, yeah, probably and since last, um, last time. Since last year, vision, and I think well, it is yeah. into it, it, it's it's it's.